Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by my fellow Old Testament professor, Dr. Peter Lee, our director of the Institute of Theology and Public Life, Jennifer Patterson, and our professor of systematic theology, Dr. Grace Sutanto. And we have a special guest as well today. Today, coming to us from the Free University in Amsterdam, Dr. Hank Vandenbelt. And it's a joy to have you here, Hank. Thank you, Scott. We, uh, Hank is here because he's going to be participating in what is, for our listeners, will be a past event, but is the Global Bavink Lecture Series, the first of the of such a series that's going on tonight here at the RTS campus. So, Hank, one of the things we want to do is introduce you more fully, and to do that, I'm going to pass it over to my colleague, uh, Grace Sutanto, to give us a more in-depth introduction to our guest. Well, we're very, very glad to have you here, Professor Hank Vandenbelt. I've known uh, Hank, probably since 2015 or 2016 or something like that, at the very beginning of my doctoral studies at the University of Edinburgh, I spent a few months in Kampen, Holland, but I also stopped by the Freie Universität at Amsterdam, had lunch there at the very beginning of my studies. And his works were very formative for my own research early on in Boving studies, and so it's kind of surreal to have him here. So let me just uh, introduce him again. So Professor Vandenbelt is... Uh, professor of Systematic Theology at the Faculty of Religion and Theology at the Freie Universität in Amsterdam. And he's also the director of the Hermann Boving Center for Reformed and Evangelical Theology there. And we're so excited to have him here tonight. He's going to give the first lecture in our Global Boving Scholars Lecture Series on why Hermann Boving, why study him 100 years later, why study him now. And we're excited to have this lecture series to host it because Bavink, as a lot of our listeners know, is representative of some of the best of modern Reformed theology. He saw an engagement with the modern world as necessary for the Reformed pastor, Reformed theologian, and he did so by drawing from resources from the past, but without regurgitating it, without repristinating it, but rather by thinking creatively with it to engage with the modern world. And so I think Hank's work is representative of that stream of scholarship, and RTS, we want to exemplify that. And so this is the perfect place, I think, to have this lecture series, to continue these conversations with global scholars around the world, and to have Hank kick us off. It's very, very exciting indeed. Welcome again, Hank. Thank you, Gray. And Hank, um, maybe say something a little bit about yourself, your own work, uh, why you did. Well, your first monograph was on the doctrine of scripture and Reformed theology, but, but how did it lead you to the work of Herman Boving. You know, you have a chapter on Herman Boving in that book, but why now Herman Boving studies in particular after that? Well, that's a very interesting question. I could give a very long answer, but I'll try to do it as briefly as possible. At this moment, I'm teaching systematic theology at the Free University. In fact, it's an honor to be in the same chair where Abraham Kuyper started. Wow. But when he became a prime minister in the Netherlands, it was a vacancy, and they invited his colleague from Kampen, Herman Bavink, to take over that chair in dogmatics. And after, of course, uh, many in between, uh, among whom um, Gerard Cornelis Berghauer, for instance, I am now the person to teach systematic theology or dogmatics at the Free University, which is an honor, but it also seems to be a little bit, um, well, almost too much for me to step in the footsteps of men like uh, like Kuiper and, and Bavink. 
Um, my first interest in Bavink, and that's also the background of my uh, dissertation and my first monograph, started when I studied at Leiden University. Uh, coming from a rather pietistic, reformed background, a small congregation where my dad was a pastor. Um, Leiden University being a place of great scholarship, but then in a historical, critical, um, liberal tradition. So somehow I felt the same tension, I guess, that Hermann Bavik himself felt years before that when he started to study there from a secession background, his father being a pastor. So maybe it's something like a history that <laughs> repeated itself in the tension that I felt between uh, growing up with the Bible as the Holy Word of God, inspired, infallible, with that um, pietistic attitude of reverence, and then this modern, uh, critical, historical, critical attitude towards scripture. So I felt that tension and it, it, I really struggled with that. And then I was, I was helped a lot by Hermann Baving's work when I discovered this small booklet on the certainty of faith, which was very instrumental for me to get clear how uh, the certainty of faith, the heart, um, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and scientific or scholarly certainty, how they relate to each other, that they are different, uh, but that they should also not be separated. So that small booklet really helped me, and then I decided to write my second master thesis on the certainty of faith. Um, of course, it was in Dutch, but I discovered that was interesting that the second edition of this beautiful book was influenced by Benjamin B. Warfield's hmm. uh, review of it. Uh, and if you compare the differences between the first and the second edition, which I did for my uh, second master thesis, uh, then you can see how Baving kind of responds to that more objective, apologetic approach of Princeton. In fact, one of the objections of Warfield against Kuiper and Baving was that they made so little of apologetics which I don't think is completely true, but it's a different kind of apologetics, really, mm -hmm. if you compare the two schools with each other. Well, that's what I did uh, for my uh, thesis. And then I became a pastor for some years, but still interested in academic theology. I started to write a dissertation, and one of the chapters was on Bavink and one of them on Warfield on this uh, issue of um, how do you know for sure, not only about assurance for salvation, the more pietistic part of the question, but also how do you know for sure that Christianity makes sense, that the gospel is true, that the Bible is trustworthy? Can we really prove that objectively? Well, there's no neutral point of view on which you could do that. At least that's Baving's answer and my discovery, but, but still it makes sense to believe in the trustworthiness of scripture as a starting point of everything else. So that brought me to the theme of the autopistia of scripture, which I wrote my dissertation on, basically on John Calvin and Reformed Orthodox theology, and then Hermann Baving and Benjamin Warfield. So yeah, maybe still a long story, but um, from the very beginning of my theological education, I was grasped by, by the work of Hermann Baving. Right, and you've also published very recently the Dutch critical edition of The Certainty of Faith. Right. 
That's right. Yeah. So um, Hank is very much active in bridging the gap between Anglophone studies and Dutch studies, very active in both worlds. So again, very excited to have you here. So, so say more about why we should continue to engage in Herman Boving studies today, 100 years later. This is sort of anticipating your lecture for tonight. What do you think? Thank you for that um, question. I'm, I'm very thankful for the international attention for Hermann Baving's work. I think that's a great blessing, even for the Dutch scholarship. Because to be honest, Baving's work is not so much read in the Netherlands at this moment. Maybe it was formerly within the Christian Reformed churches, at least if you translate Griformeerde Kerken in Nederland that way. The Christian Reformed in America are affiliated with the Griformeerde Kerken. But um, I think there is a kind of revival of interest among the younger students in, in Baving studies. And that is also due to the international interest. So very thankful for the, for the, for the bridge between the English translations and um, the Dutch theological world. I think that for our students, it's even easier to read Baving in English than in Dutch, which sounds weird, but that has two reasons, because the Dutch language has changed over the years much more than the English mm -hmm. has changed, but especially because um, Bavink uses a lot of Latin and Greek phrases and, and quotations, and they're all nicely translated into English, which makes it easier mm -hmm. to, to get the sense of them for our Dutch students. So having said that, I think, um, well, Bavink is interesting for, um, for several reasons. And um, one of them I mentioned already, the combination of that uh, experiential, heartfelt sense of religion. I, I mean, theology really matters not only... Uh, as a speculative art, not at all, I would say, but as something that has a practical um, application and, and a need for feeding the souls of people. I, I think Bavink is a good example of, of theology in, in practice in that way, but also because he represents the Reformed Orthodox tradition and he had a very clear knowledge of the theology of the Reformation, mm. Luther and Calvin, but also of Reformed Orthodox theology. In fact, he uh, edited the sixth edition of the synopsis of purer theology that was first published just after the Synod of Dort in 1625 mm. and went through a few later editions, but he, he really worked through that book and uh, Right after writing his dissertation at Leiden, being a young pastor in Franeker in Friesland, it was very beneficial to study Reformed Orthodox theology from the synopsis for his own theological development. So you see that working through in his later works, the Reformed ethics, the Reformed dogmatics, um, very nicely. But then Reformed theology is just part of that ecumenical, broad, Catholic Christian tradition, Catholic in the sense of universal. So I, I think Bavink is also very helpful for the discussion between the different Christian traditions, um, always trying to understand his opponents mm -hmm. um, in a sympathetic way and to represent their views as, as strongly as possible before entering into a dialogue with them. It's even sometimes difficult to understand where Baving himself st is standing in that discussion um, because he is so congenial with his opponents that you think, well, 
is this really bathing or is he just just explaining how someone else is thinking and then he comes back to the reformed position it's it's really theology and dialogue which which i like a lot and i think it's very helpful for the inter traditional uh, ecumenical discussions even for uh, today and then a next step even would be his interest uh, growing interest i think especially in his amsterdam years in the relationship between theology and philosophy especially epistemological questions so revelation is not only in jesus christ and in the bible yes that's the heart that's the core of everything but it is so broad and wide that all our knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, even in science, natural sciences, mm -hmm. in history, all our true knowledge, you might want to say, is based on, on revelation, or that's a theological way of looking at epistemology mm -hmm. and at our knowledge. So he really tried to bridge the gap between a modern secularizing worldview uh, maybe not bridge the gap, but but formulate an alternative for that in saying, well, thinking in a Trinitarian way from the Christian tradition about every field of knowledge is so helpful. And I love that. I like that. Uh, the, the tendency and the temptation today is to separate theology from the rest of our knowledge mm -hmm. or to integrate it in a way that is maybe also not so satisfying because the Bible is not a textbook for natural science, right? Mm -hmm. But how do you combine the two of them in a correct way? God's mouth, his spoken word through Jesus Christ and through the scriptures, that witness of him and the witness of God in creation and in providence, in, in, in the natural world and in, in its history. Bavink really is someone that's things in a unity and not in that separation mm. and maybe a, a final thing if if i say his spirituality his knowledge of the reformed tradition his ecumenical desire to keep into discussion his interest in philosophy maybe most important is his um his vision of the glory and the sovereignty of god over everything so he really thinks theologically uh, trinitarian uh, it's a trinitarian theology uh, bavink always thinks father the son and the holy spirit and how they work together and how that is well in him we live and um, the breath of our life is is in god and we exist in him so that's very foundational for his uh, theology and that makes it really reformed uh, in its essence. Uh, so that would be my, my answer, and I, I hope to elaborate on that tonight a little bit with some quotations. Well, all of those are worth pursuing, and we thank you for the lecture that you'll be presenting to elaborate on them, and we hope to elaborate on them more in this discussion. Um, I'm struck by your description of the challenge of reading Bavink because he is so generous towards mm -hmm. those he disagrees with. And um, I was struck by the line in your book on the authority of scripture that Bavink was an irenic theologian. Mm -hmm. Reform theology for him is Catholic theology, mm -hmm. uh, as you've described it. I wonder if you could elaborate on another item in that book, uh, your book on the authority of scripture, distinguishing the certainty of science from the certainty of faith 
And further relating that to truth, you discussed some of the di distinctions between mm -hmm. those ideas. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's one of the more difficult sides maybe of his work. And, and maybe Bavink himself is also struggling with it a little bit. Um, from his desire to be honest in conscience uh, about the facts of natural uh, science and still critical about the presuppositions of secular natural science, he was wrestling with things like evolutionary worldview and how to relate that to the scriptural witness. But on a higher or maybe a, a deeper level, Bavink would say um, the certainty of science, scientific certainty, is based on proof and evidence. And it seems to be stronger in that um, argumentative sense than the certainty of faith. Um, on the other hand, the certainty of faith, of religious belief in general, goes so much deeper than scientific certainty because hardly would anyone uh, be willing to give his life for his scientific uh, convictions. But if it goes back to religious convictions, then they are so deep and so strong that, that people would be willing to suffer and die even for their uh, religious convictions. And now certainty is not the same as truth, of course. You can mm -hmm. be very sure about something which is not true. That makes it more complicated. But describing these two different kinds of certainty I think is helpful as such. And then it's so beautiful how he tries to build the bridge because then when you when you think on it, also on scientific certainty, in fact, that rests on witness. Leave alone the witness of scholars that have gone before us because we all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And um, much of science, natural science, is also based on trust in what others have found. You cannot do, do everything over yourself. But even beyond that, natural science also thinks about um, the witness that the created reality gives of its own existence and is based on a basic trust in our, uh, our senses and the way in which we perceive things that we're not deceived by that. So he really struggles and tries to, to show that in the end, in that scientific certainty, there's also an element of belief and trust. And is that then ultimately based on, on, on ourselves, or our insights? Or should and can we better, and that's Bavink's position, relate that to our faith in God, who is trustworthy? And in a sense, I, I, I think he says that if you give up that faith in God, you will never know for sure, never be able to know for sure that your sensual perception of reality is trustworthy. So there, 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 that's the point where he tries to connect uh, faith. And from a Christian perspective, he says it is God the Father, the Creator, who made the world through his word, the Logos, connecting that to Christology, and who is through the word, witnessing by the general work of the Holy Spirit to the human heart. So it's a very Trinitarian understanding of what you would call reformed 
epistemology before the thing reformed epistemology existed really which is of course with Plantinga and the others a, a, a little bit a different meaning but I think in a sense there's a line of continuity though Plantinga one time shared that he didn't know the work of Baving but but through Calvin Seminary and through Calvin University I think there's a line from this um, neo-Calvinism to more contemporary ways of uh, doing epistemology. That's fascinating. The question about science, the scientist doing it in light of an awareness of Trinitarian theology, and mm -hmm. it makes for better science, not that it makes for more precise science necessarily, but it makes, um, an unbeliever can obviously do science and formulate mm -hmm. scientific data, uh, formulations that explain data, but that there's something more complete about it. How, how would he describe that? I, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to get at what, how would we describe Th that that trinitarian awareness uh, mm. does he go so far as to connect it with something like worship you know the science is worshipful in that sense in the context of a christian doing it i i think here bavink would make a distinction between um, a, a christian who uses it as a way to worship god mm -hmm. and scientists who are unbelievers or have a different religion who unknowingly still use that same witness of God in his creation mm -hmm. and even through his general work of his spirit. But, but it is a sad thing that they don't realize and recognize what they are really doing. As Christians, we recognize that or interpret that uh, in general from that Christian perspective and, oh, that they would know what they are really doing, then they would worship God uh, yeah. through it. I think that would be a Bavinkian answer, but this is really Gray's field too, so maybe he, he uh, can add to that. Well, you're preaching to the choir there. Everything okay. you were saying, I was just singing my praises too. So that was wonderful. Um, can you maybe say more about how, I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast how Warfield criticized Boving. And of course, Warfield would also critique Kuiper on the same sort of topics in the Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology, a particular response to, to Kuiper's work there. So how do you think Boving's answer still could remain satisfying given Warfield's criticism for a lack of objectivity, for a lack of rational proofs or something like that. Why is his defense of the authentication, self-authentication of scripture and Christian Trinitarian epistemology still persuasive despite his uh, perhaps lack of emphasis on common rational proofs? Yeah, I think that's still a very relevant question today. And maybe you can use Warfield's concern and response to discern a vulnerability in neo-Calvinist philosophy and theology. Because although Bavink really tried hard to avoid subjectivism, and I think successfully, you can misunderstand and misinterpret that position as being just a matter of your faith, your belief, and then it becomes very relativist and postmodern and subjectivist. Which maybe happened in Amsterdam and the Free University in uh, over the years mm. as a tendency, but that's a different story, and I would be the last one to blame Baving for that. But mm. yes, there is that vulnerability, and then also think of the contextuality of theology in the beginning of the 20th century that we're talking about, or, or really the turn of the 19th through the 20th century. I think culturally, Europe was different than America. Um, well, of course, Warfield knew the continent and vice versa. And um, there's also this common ground. But the influence of 
thinkers like Nietzsche especially, but also the radical uh, lines from the radical enlightenment were so much um, stronger in Europe and in the Netherlands at that time than they were in America. So in sum, I think Warfield's concern coming from the traditional apologetic view in which you first basically on the grounds of creative reality and the religious feeling, the, um, the sense of, of the divine, as Calvin calls, calls it, you first argue for the existence of God. And if you have argued for that, then it's natural that this existing God also has revealed himself. And if there is a revelation, then maybe the Christian revelation is the has the strongest uh, credits mm -hmm. for being that. And then the authority of scripture follows from it and so on and so forth. That's how um, Warfield understood apologetics. And I think that Kuiper and even Bavink in a stronger sense felt that that was all true, but it did not really answer the needs of secular Europe yeah. at that moment. So in a sense, it remains biblical and traditional sound reformed theology that there are good arguments for the existence of God and for the truth of Christianity. And we should not, we should not neglect that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, and that's something that Warfield also acknowledges, people will never be argued into the kingdom of God mm -hmm. unless there is this strong appeal of, of the gospel, uh, of the witness of Jesus Christ as the savior of sinners that lines up with with the human uh, conscience. Although Bavink was maybe a little bit more optimistic about that than I would be after 125 years, <laughs> given the cultural development and yeah, what is conscience really, especially in a general uh, sense, conscience can also be really misformed, right, by culture. But that's that's more complicated. So I would say yes, that, um, that we need both maybe in our postmodern time, um, Warfield's emphasis on the objective and Baving's emphasis, not on the subjective, I would say, though the vulnerability is in that distinguishing between right. both of them, but more on the heart the, the, that, uh, that Christianity is the answer for the need of every human being. I don't yeah. think the positions exclude each other. No, I agree. So you've, back to this issue of consciousness, and uh, again, returning to your work on the authority of scripture uh, and the trust that a Christian has um, in God's word and God's work in the world, um, Bavink was emphasizing um, the uh, scripture, the church, and Christian consciousness. And can you um, say more about that interaction and, and particularly what his ideas with regard to Christian consciousness bring to the debate about the subjective um, and, and the Christian's trust. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do these play a role in the Christian's um, sense of trust in God's word? Mm -hmm. To start with, I think the idea of self-awareness or self-consciousness is very uh, foundational in Baving's epistemology and philosophy and theology. Even in his early writing of the Reformed Ethics, when he discusses the traditional position on 
what you call the practical syllogism. Uh, how can you know for sure as a Christian that you are a child of God, that you are chosen, elect, that you're heading for eternal salvation? This was a very practical, pietistic question within his own circle. But when he discusses that with his students, I think that's fascinating. Then he starts to talk about um, psychology and epistemology. And then he says that in a sense, the awareness uh, of our, our own existence, that, that self-consciousness, that self-awareness, that it has to do with this question of how do you know for sure? So he tries to relate that certainty of salvation that we would call assurance with this more basic certainty of the existence of ourselves, self-awareness, uh, the existence of reality outside of us, the existence of God. You really see some of the influence, not immediately, but through what he had read and was taught in philosophy, yeah. in Leiden, obviously, of René Descartes, yeah. I exist, therefore I am. So there's a Cartesian element there where he discusses um, self-awareness as a parallel also to that self-awareness of the, of the faithful, of the Christian who almost naturally and automatically, uh, at least if it is a healthy kind of faith, is aware of her own trust of God, or of his being in Jesus Christ. And he says, if you all, in, in that pastoral context of reformed ethics, he says, if you always question that and always are doubting, that's not, that's not so healthy. What I really want to say is that self-consciousness and the conscience and, and the, 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 the sense of the divine are very foundational for Baving's practical theology, discussing with, candidates for the ministry in the secession church all these these were farmer uh, boys i mean <laughs> they they applied for the ministry and maybe they were really astonished about uh, this level of education I, I sometimes try to imagine a class of of theological students in that time but he really tried to relate their pastoral needs with foundational elements of uh, the Christian's conscience and self-awareness and consciousness. And then he develops these lines in the Reformed Dogmatics and later on even in the uh, philosophy of Revelation in the Stone Lectures. There's a line of continuity there. Hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned before our recording was that Bavink almost became an Old Testament professor. And you're also working on a transcription of his lectures on the Psalms. Please talk to us more about that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's it's great as such that the Bavink archives are uh, open, not only at the Free University where you would have to travel to Amsterdam to read them, but they're on um, the internet right now, thanks mm -hmm. to the Neo-Calvinism Institute by my uh, great colleague, George Haring. Mm -hmm. So I knew of the existence of this lecture because I ran into that when I was looking for the background of the Certainty of Faith booklet, which really originated as a lecture, and it was, I found the manuscript and um, edited that for the critical edition that you just mentioned. But there are more lectures of Bavink, and there's a, mostly a list of dates and places in the back of this pamphlet. So 
I just imagine that he traveled around being invited by reformed congregations <laughs> to have a weekday lecture by train, of course. And he, he spent a night over there and he just spoke with the, with the people and then he used the same lecture over and over again. In fact, we have a tool in the Dutch newspaper websites where you can just Google on the title of the lecture and on Bavink and then you can find some of the advertisements of the places where he really held these oh, lectures. Wow. One of them is on the Psalms. And so with a group of um, undergraduate students, most of them, some are MA students, about six of us, we transcribe uh, page by page, taking turns of this uh, Dutch manuscript, which is not even too easy for my students to read, but it's real fun to do it together and then to try to decipher what is the exact word. Oh, is he saying that? And this is a beautiful lecture on the, on the Psalms. It's not really that exegetical, but he, he refers to the specific gifts of the Jewish people for poetry and how he interprets that from the Dutch tradition with the great poet Da Costa, maybe that is a familiar name for some. Uh, at least he was a great uh, Dutch poet of the Dutch Rivai in the 18th century, um, a great man. Uh, very influential also for the Dutch churches. Well, Bavink re reflects on that and yeah, we are, we are transcribing it in the first place and uh, we'll try to publish that and translate it maybe into English because I think that's a so fascinating that uh, piece. Just to be clear, so he's, he's comparing Dutch poetry to Hebrew poetry in the Bible and kind of using that as a relief to understand the beauty of biblical poetry? Or is that yeah, I, I think you could put it that way, or he's he's looking at Jewish po poets. Da Costa yeah. had a Jewish Jewish roots. Oh, so he's not yeah. just looking at biblical poetry; he's looking at Jewish poetry across. The yeah, centuries. that's right. Yeah, oh, he's fascinating. comparing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. I knew I knew there was a reason why uh, I liked Herman Bavink. And <laughs> you just beyond just it out. The, well, beyond <laughs> just his the, just beyond his theology, I knew that. Intrinsically, he was a uh, literary Old Testament man. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for asking that, Dr. Sutanta. You well, did steal question my question. You. Well, you stole my question. Oh, that my I bad. was just was going to say. I, I guess I am curious since uh, you know you mentioned the Psalms. That's such a very special book that warms my heart uh, in 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 so many different ways. And uh, it is interesting that some of the best and uh, greatest of Reformed theologians, Calvin, uh, and his commentaries on the Psalms are outstanding. Uh, Martin Luther did two different sets of commentaries on the Psalms, one pre-conversion, one after. And um, in fact, I think Luther is the one who said that there are three books of scripture that you most absolutely need to study to get a full-orbed uh, systematic theological construct, uh, the Book of Romans, the Book of Galatians, and interestingly, the mm -hmm. Book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm curious, and I'm not sure how far you've gotten in in your work on uh, Bovink and the Psalms, but do you still, do you get that sense of the theology of the Psalter, uh, uh, and 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 Boving's thoughts of theology derived from the Psalms. Yeah, I, I think he would be a bit more careful than Luther was to interpret everything in a Christological way immediately. So he was a he had studied, of course, John Calvin's method, and even Abraham Kuhnen, the great um, Old Testament scholar from a historical, critical, modern perspective in Leiden, he always had a picture of Kunin in mm. his study huh. because he honored him as his doctor father. Mm. So he, he was a supervisor for his dissertation, but also in the method, the historical, critical method 
of um, Kunan, which Bavink would not so much apply to Scripture because of a different view of Scripture and the um, infallibility of Scripture, but which he, I think, used a lot to um, study historical theology. So, yes, um, that that's probing sense of what is the the intention of the author, what is the real meaning of the text. That's a method that Bavink really used a lot. And, um, well, given that background, Abraham Kuyper had asked him when he was just a pastor in Franeker to join the faculty of the Free University and teach Old Testament, which was a great honor and maybe also a temptation for Bavink because he really expected to get appointed by his own small secession church as a professor in Kampen. And I think he really uh, sacrificed himself at that moment, not taking the opportunity to join the Free University in Amsterdam because he really wanted to serve his own church in uh, dogmatics. The other side of the coin is that Bavink undoubtedly would have been a great Old Testament scholar in his own day, but um, I'm afraid that his work would be a little bit more um, contextual and, and bound to that specific situation. I don't think there would be a real Bavink revival internationally <laughs> if Bavink had been an Old Testament scholar still today. But he had that interest, and this example of a lecture on the Psalms also shows how he read the Psalms more as an expression of the Christian faith, the heights of worship and glorification of God, but also the depth of despair and um, the questions why things happen as they happen and the struggle with God. So I think in a lecture like that, you also see a very pastoral side of Hermann Baving's work coming so close to the heart. And then also think of these, of the context of a very specific local small congregation on a weekday, having the professor of Amsterdam in their midst. And then he speaks to the heart and really very in an existential way about singing the Psalms and using them in the for Christian mm. worship. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we, we would have had a Bavink uh, explosion of a different sort, perhaps. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> it would have been like Kyle and Dalich maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Or just a, uh, uh, another version of a more popular Gerhard is Voss, perhaps. Mm -hmm. PSA, though, the website for the Dutch newspapers it's Delfer.nl, right? Yeah, Delfer, yes. Delfer. The lifesaver of a website. So for those of you who are interested and curious about this, go to Delfer.nl and you'll find everything Bavink related if you search in there close mm -hmm. enough. Oh, so it's all Bavink related material that was it's, in the newspapers. It's general, but you can type in keywords, things like that. Yeah, so. you have to practice a little bit in how yeah, to sure. use the tool, but yeah. if you know how to use it, then you can find a lot of information. Don't, don't just search Hermann. That, yeah, that's, that's, right. that's not going to do it. Public reactions to neo-Calvinism, receptions from liberal side, conservative side, is all there. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And he was not called by his first name in that in those days I'm in sure. the Netherlands. I'm sure yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. And there might so, have been a few so other people with that name. It's interesting. One of the times that he held a lecture on the certainty of faith was for the students in Amsterdam, a small student society, maybe 10, 15 of them. And, and two of them were his brothers. And then when he was there, he said to all the students, just call me Hermann. 
I mean, his brothers were there and well, one of them just noted that down and recalled that after he passed away. So yeah, I think that was also a side of Bavink being with two of his brothers and some other students feeling a little bit uncomfortable for some of them calling him the professor. So I said, oh, just call me Hermann. In those days, that was very exceptional. There was a citation in uh, James Eglinton's uh, biography where he was he was quoted it was it was from a journal entry of one of Bavink's students and he was talking about how you you would arrive early to class and Bavink would be sitting there just having open discussions about plays mm -hmm. about op-eds in the newspaper mm -hmm. about essays and just fielding questions and then as the class time arrived he would kind of I think you'd be sitting on the mantle and then he'd stand up and he'd walk toward the lectern mm -hmm. while still talking about a play mm -hmm. or something. And then as he arrived at the lectern, he would then commence into the lecture. Yeah. But, but again, that kind of spirit of being very open to his students and mm -hmm. very, uh, having a very general interest mm -hmm. and, and, um, open engagement with culture yeah. and all kinds of things uh, applied to it that they would bring to class. So that, I love that's that. a picture that I also have of it. But well, there was a certain aloofness maybe also in him as in all the professors of those days. But compared to his peers, I think he was accessible at least. And uh, yeah, also uh, had a pastor's heart for his students. You can see that when he writes, for instance, to a student who was terminally ill. Mm. He wrote letters also about uh, core of the Christian faith and uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, your only comfort, both in life and death. So he had also that uh, that side to him. That's remarkable. That's terrific. Hank, given, given the biographical details that you share with Hermann Bavink, your denominational background, study at Leiden, occupying this chair at the Free University, and in a time a century later where we are in culturally shifting terrain, what are the aspects of Bavink studies or neo-Calvinist studies generally that you think are important? There may be gaps in the work. I can really understand internationally, given the growing tensions that the neo-Calvinist tradition, Kuiper and Bavink, I think you need both of them, is, is rather helpful in a pluralistic context to both maintain the essence of the Christian faith as the truth and as the as the very best thing that there is on earth that you would want to share with everyone. And uh, it's exclusive in a sense. And at the same time, always to look for the connection, to bridge the gap, to ask the question, what do I have in common with Muslims? Well, there's a lot that I don't have in common with them. But in a sense, is there some truth in their position? Yes, there is, according to Bavink. Even the faith in the one God over against polytheism was a step towards the truth that he would really appreciate in, in the Islam. And his ongoing contact with Christian Snukur Hronje, the great Islamist, uh, Islamist, I think. Is that how you call it in English? Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. uh, of his days in the Netherlands. I mean, he was he was so open and always tried to to relate and to find the connection. So I have a strong concern about the development in the Netherlands, but also here in America, over a culture war. Well, there is this antithesis, and that's there from the very beginning of Genesis 3, and it will remain until the, the judgment day. But there's also the other side of what Kuiper called common grace, or what you 
at least try to to find a way to relate and to communicate and to find something that um, that is a common moral compass maybe um, well it's 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 difficult but uh, I, I think it would be wrong to to f to cherish a culture war as Christians it is the reality but um, given this situation and given growing tensions we should be known as real peacemakers or as I heard in a sermon in one of the mega churches around Washington DC Sunday morning that we should really um, be known as the most compassionate people from the compassion of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ I think that attitude is very important and that theologically neo-Calvinism can help in trying to explain why it is theologically sound to maintain the antithesis and to uphold the truth and yet to seek for that which does connect instead of dividing people more than, uh, than necessary. So I think that's, that makes it very relevant. Another thing would be that whole epistemological attitude that is of course also contextual in the 19th century, but the same drive to understand all given knowledge as coming from God and his revelation, I think we should have that same uh, passion. And then being a discussion with Reformed tradition and ecumenical traditions of Christianity in the same attitude. So we should not copy Hermann Baving, literally in everything, but we should use his method in our own situation. Mm. You mentioned that your father was a pastor and pastored in the United States, mm -hmm. actually, for a while. And then you, you've pastored in the midst of your study. So I'm thinking now about what we've been talking about. You said you don't want to imitate Herman Boving, but there's much to learn from him. Um, I'm thinking about the idea of the pastor-scholar, and you, you've lived that out in your own way. Um and it sounds like your father was a, was a thoughtful man mm -hmm. and minister, and, and and of course Kuiper and Bavink, uh, as you already mentioned, you know, had very mm -hmm. ministerial sides to them. Is is there a role for the pastor scholar today? And and sensing that I know what your answer will be, uh, what what would that role be? Mm -hmm. what, what, what's the importance? Is it still important for us to have pastor scholars? Um, yeah, I've fond memories of the time in Clifton, New Jersey, where my dad was a pastor in the Free Reformed Church. He studied in Compton, in fact, um, huh. in the Reformed Churches Liberated, and he really loved theology as a, um, well, as a, as a scholar. So I think he was an, an example of a pastor scholar in, in a sense, and it really was my desire to to be like that. I didn't have the intention of becoming a professor ever when I studied theology. And even when I wrote my dissertation, I just did that out of interest, not with the intention to become an academic. Um, so I really had the idea of, of being a pastor and that, that's a, maybe the highest calling that there that there is on earth to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that I still can preach at least. I'm not, um, not I'm still allowed to do that, although I don't have a congregation of my own. But to answer your question, I, th I think for pastoral care, knowledge of psychology is very important. But then is it the secular psychology or can we also Christianize that? And 
think from the Christian tradition about the deepest human needs, mm-hmm. not not for the antithesis to oppose them to each other as if it's a completely different kind of psychology, but to look at uh, the human soul from a Christian perspective mm-hmm. um, and to preach really uh, and not to end up in entertainment or in in dry orthodoxy, I think training your mind in 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 academic theology or in solid god talk theology literally is speaking about who god is i think that's very important for solid preaching um and that's what people really uh, need um maybe there is a more common feeling at last at least in the netherlands that it should not be all too difficult and i can understand that sure uh, for an average uh, audience but on the other hand where people are really fed by the word of god and by the the broader insights of uh, salvation history of the the work of the covenant uh, god's dispensations in the covenant the relationship between the old and the new testament how can you preach on the old testament if you don't have that solid framework of theology in the back of your mind. So yes, I think it's very important for pastoral care and for um, preaching and maybe also for um, exercising the mind of the pastor himself mm. to avoid becoming too superficial. Mm-hmm. That That's such a, an important part of our reformed heritage. I mean, it goes back to Calvin and even uh, uh, as you were describing uh, Herb and Bob in his, in his interaction with students, that um, that that embracing of of not just uh, a a cognitive cerebral pursuit of truth, especially as we are challenged by such a pluralistic and modern mm-hmm. community that we're now living in, uh, and that Bobbing was living in, but to be able to know how to feed our people, and not in 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 a holistic way, and and that's such a um, a a, a, a a thing and this isn't the first time I've heard this in in the in the Calvinistic neo-Calvinist tradition to have men who embrace truth and solid reformed orthodoxy but yet still have such a deep heartfelt uh, uh, conviction to minister to God's people and yeah. uh, the the problem we see I think in our day to day is I'm, I'm 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 sure there's a question in here somewhere <laughs> maybe or just I would love your thoughts on it is is how we seem to have kind of deviated and kind of split, you know, theology on one part, pastoral care, ministerial mm-hmm. care on another, and rarely do we see the two come together in 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 um, in pastoral. Where I grew up in Southern California, this actually was really well divided among schools. So, if you wanted to be a theologian, you went to Westminster, California. If you wanted to do ministry, you went to Talbot Seminary. And the idea of trying to get the two together mm-hmm. in one person was just you know, you had to pick either or, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and, yeah. and that just seems foreign to the way that you described uh, 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 Herman Bobbing and this pastor-scholar question that was just yeah. Well, at least I think that's a blessing for the Dutch church is that we still adhere to the academic training of all our ministers, unless there are specific um, gifts. I mean, there should be exceptions. Mm. Peter was a fisherman too. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> always referred to, but... On the other hand, uh, I, I think it's very important to maintain that uh, academic training to try to keep to keep these things together. And uh, yeah, if you if you only read 
Bavings, dogmatics maybe, that's a little bit one-sided, but if you place that in the broader context, and especially, as I said, some of the lectures or the, or the pamphlets, he even wrote a beautiful book for those who made confession of faith, um, introducing them to the sacraments. I mean, that's a tradition, at least in the Dutch Reformed churches, there's no adult baptism unless there are exceptions, but we baptize the children, but when they're maybe 18 or 20, they make a public confession of faith. And he wrote a beautiful tract on that um, for that uh, audience. Maybe that was the most wide-read book of Herman Bavink in his time because it was given as a gift many times for young people who made their uh, confession class. Has that been translated? Yes. I think so. I don't know the English uh, title. Sacrifice of Praise oh, yeah. by Cam Claus and oh, right. Greg okay. Parker. Okay. Sacrifice okay. of Praise. Yeah. Good friends of ours. That's terrific. That's that's that, that's. I would love to see that. I would love to read that. It's it's available. Uh, it's well, an, get me a copy, yeah. Doctor. Grab, grab the one from my office too. Yeah. Okay. Greg and Cam are listening to this, and you're very happy right now. There you have. Ask and you shall receive. Okay. It sometimes life really is just that simple. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Vanderbilt. This has been fascinating, and and uh, you couldn't have put it more more succinctly there at the end. You know, the the importance of a deep and academic training mm-hmm. for Christian ministry and doesn't need to be forgotten. Of course, that's what we're doing here at Reformed Theological Seminary. If if you'd like to learn more about us, please come check out our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. And if you'd like to ask a question of the podcast for us to answer at a later date, you can go to the show notes here attached to this episode and you can see a link there on where you can post a question but this has been a fascinating conversation and we want to thank you so much for joining us hank thanks for being with us this week you're welcome and it was a privilege to be here and to share something of uh, my fascination for herman bavink that i share with uh, brothers and sisters worldwide and being in his chair and the director of the herman bavink institute at the free university well it's 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 a privilege to be able to uh, spread what I've received from his work. When you were reminding us of your predecessors in your chair, I thought that those are some mighty shoes to fill. Wow. <laughs> Blessings <laughs> to you in your work. I shouldn't think of that too much, then otherwise I get uh, discouraged. But yeah, anyway. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Right. Some giants are taller than others. It's been great to have you. And to everyone else, we look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. To it. Call each other by the first name. Sure. First name is fine. Jennifer. Gray. Call me Gray. Yeah. Scott. And Peter. Okay. Yeah. Remember that. Otherwise, can. And this is T. And this is Timo. Yeah, he'll fix it. You can say just say whatever name you want, and then we'll voice in. You'll have Timo's voice. I was like, "Hey, John." Peter. Call me Cephas. Cephas. The Rock. Yeah.